0: You are now listening to the April 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee.
1: It's Terry from near My God to Thee where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. Have you ever imagined how the resurrected Jesus may have looked? Jesus was whipped, wore a crown of thorns, and was crucified on the cross. I wonder how Jesus looked after he resurrected on the third day. I'm sure his resurrected appearance was different from the way he looked at his death. If he arose and looked the way he did upon his death, he would have looked very gruesome. It would have been similar to the way he was portrayed in the movie Passion of the Christ, which came out 10 years ago. I'm sure that all the scars were healed and Jesus' body was restored when he resurrected. However, if we look in the Bible, it says even though Jesus' scars were healed, they still remained the scars of his nail-pierced hands, and his spear-pierced side remained. When Thomas said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then Jesus said, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. This indicates that after the resurrection, Jesus' nail-pierced hands remained. I believe Jesus could have restored his nail purest scars, but he let them remain as part of God's will for us to eternally remember his grace. Among the hymns we know well, there is a hymn that says, Have you failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Let's listen to the hymn for a moment. Have you failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Are you weary and worn from its toil and strife? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. This hymn is called The Nail-Scarred Hand, and it is composed by Professor Bayliss McKinney. He was a professor at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. How did he end up writing this hymn? We'll find out through a drama.
2: Professor McKinney taught the Bible to the students at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. In May of 1923, he attended a revival held in Texas to hear the message. The revival was 50 miles away from his house, but Professor McKinney loved the word and traveled 50 miles. In 1923, traveling 50 miles required a long duration of time. When he arrived at the revival, the speaker preached on the topic of nail-pierced hands.
3: The one who did not know sin died on the cross to save you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why did he do this? It says it's so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's so that the sinners will not die in our sin, but in him we will become the righteousness of God and he will give us life. Therefore, we must be at peace with God. God is inviting you today. He is calling you to receive His love. Do you believe the truth? Then look at Jesus' nail-pierced hands. Touched His nail-pierced hands. Who were His hands pierced for?
2: Professor McKinney heard the sermon and his heart began racing. Jesus resurrected, but the scars of his nail-pierced hands didn't disappear. The scars of his nail-pierced hands led us to God and become our strength. Professor McKinney received great blessings and was challenged that day. He planned on returning home at the end of the revival, but he couldn't because of a storm accompanied by thunder and lightning. Hmm, it doesn't seem like the rain will stop anytime soon. I should find the room and spend the night here and return tomorrow. Professor McKinney found a room to stay during the continuous storm. As he looked at the pouring rain out the window, he meditated on the message he heard that night. The scars of Jesus' nail pierced hands. Yes, Jesus loved me so much that He endured the pain and suffering of being nailed to the cross. Certainly, He who loved us to the point of death would never forsake us. If He was going to give up on us, He wouldn't have been nailed on the cross. From now on, when I go through hardships in my life, I will remember the scars of His nail-pierced hands. Every time I look at the scars of His nail-pierced hands, I will again realize the love He has for saving me. Through that, I will regain strength and walk the path of following the Lord. McKinney meditated on a message and visualized the scars of Jesus' nail-pierced hands. He then wrote about the awe he felt.
1: McKinney couldn't return home because of the pouring rain and stayed in a room. He was able to meditate upon the message at that place and wrote about the awe he felt a melody was added to his writing, and the hymn, The Nail-Scarred Hand, was written. Just as McKinney confessed every time we face hardship in this life, we must remember the love Jesus had to save us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's right. If we have that faith, we can trust God's leading in every situation. Even in those situations where it seems like He's not there, it's because He will not give up on His people whom He gained by giving His Son. During times of difficulty, I hope we could touch the scars of Jesus' nail-pierced hands and regain our strength. Well, then, end, Nearer My God to Thee.
4: Your storm tossed life, Place your, your hand, hand in the nails hard hand. Are you weary and worn from its toils and strife? Place your, your hand. Comfort your heart, put your trust in him, place your, your hand, hand in the nails God
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Father of Us All. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
5: In verses 9 to 25 that we find ourselves at this morning, Paul is going to refer to Abraham five times his father and that repetition tells us that he wants us to really be thinking about the nature of the fatherhood of Abraham as it relates to his children and he's going to be arguing that when it comes to having Abraham as a father it's more important that we have his spiritual DNA than his physical DNA we we will see that our relationship is sown in our faith not in our face so to speak Now, Paul says the more accurate paternity test to discover if Abraham is your father is more about your faith than your biology. Now, it's about spiritual realities more than physical. And let's not forget the true sons of Abraham become heirs of the promises of God to Abraham and his people. So it's important that you know who your daddy is. And if it's Abraham, then you've got a lot coming to you and a lot that is yours in Christ. Well, this is our big idea. If you're taking notes, it's this. It's that faith in Christ makes us heirs of the world with Abraham. Faith in Christ means that we become heirs of the world with Abraham. Uh, We're going to see that in our text this morning. Well, first, notice in verses 9 to 12, we find that Father Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision. Father Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision. Now, Paul is transitioning with a question about this blessing you'll notice in verse 9 and you might say well what is that blessing Uh, that blessing is justification by faith alone he's still talking about it and he asked this question in verse 9 if this blessing then is only for the circumcised is it only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness now here's what's happening if you're tracking along and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the text. Paul here, he has just gotten through talking about the horizontal nature of faith and the way that it changes your status with God. It makes you right with God. It brings you peace with God. You're right standing based on your faith with God. But in these verses that we're looking at this morning, we find that now he's going to talk about the horizontal implications who are the people of God? Who are the children of God? And he wants to, to look at this in light of the nature of justification by faith alone. And he pulls up a very interesting chronological reality. Uh, he is tracing through the life of Abraham, and he says, I want you to notice that there is a thing that happens before another thing. And we find this in verses 9 to 25. In verses 9 to 25, he shows us what he's getting at. Now notice what he says, verses 10 to 12, he says this. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, he's making a number of points here. Uh, for one, he is pointing out that Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, which comes before he was circumcised In Genesis 17. Now that means that you can be right with God without circumcision because Abraham was. He was already said to be made righteous and right with God before he was circumcised. And you'll notice that Paul is here talking about circumcision as a sign and a seal. I think those are really speaking of the same kind of reality. And they're pointing to the reality that the righteousness of God has already been imputed or credited to the account of Abraham based on his faith. Now we also see that God planned for Abraham to be justified by faith prior to circumcision on purpose. In other words, this chronology that we see between Genesis 15 and 17 isn't just accidental. Abraham understands this as part of the purposes of God, the way that it is unfolding. Not just what unfolds, but how it unfolds and even the order of it unfolding. So God intended from the beginning, according to Paul, to make Abraham the father of all who believe without circumcision, speaking of the, the Gentiles in verse 11. He says, I, I want all of those who are without circumcision to be part of the people of God. Verse 11, and then he also says, and not just them, but also to make him the father of those who are not merely circumcised in verse 12, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I take that to mean that Jews and Gentiles alike truly have Abraham as their father by sharing his faith, not his DNA or his circumcision. Now, that means that anyone can get in on this deal that we call grace. That's what Paul is signaling. This gospel, and you'll remember this is a missionary letter, is for the nations. By faith, we become part of God's people. See, Paul says Abraham placed his faith in a specific promise of God made to him and his offspring specifically. He uses this word promise in verses 13 to the rest of the chapter five times. Again, wanting us to see not just that Abraham is important, but the promise to Abraham is important. And look what he says in verse 13 about this promise. He says, for the the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, God promised Abraham that he and his offspring, that they would be heirs of the world. There's no verse that matches exactly this promise word for word, but it sums up the promises that God made to Abraham throughout. If you want to look at some of these, you'll remember that God promised Abraham many descendants in Genesis 12 2, and that all nations would be blessed through him in Genesis 12. Twelve, 3, that his offspring would possess the gate of his enemies in Genesis twenty-two, 17. And then later, as he's talking to and through David, David is the one through whom he says the promises of Abraham are going to be filled through his seed, through his offspring that's going to come through him. And we find that one of his sons would rule over the entire earth in Psalm 2, 8. And then in Psalm 72, 8, we find that the reign of this sun would be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And then we are told in Isaiah 54, 2-3, to three, that this Son would have a universal reign. I take it that Paul is, with this short phrase, summarizing the, the great and awesome promises that were made to Abraham throughout his life. That God promised that he and his offspring would be Heirs of the world through the righteousness of faith, not the law. Abraham was also justified by faith 430 years before the law came. He explains in verse 14, if you look there again, he says, For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith. If it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, but I think the main point's clear. Uh, Just to help you get to it, uh, that word for adherence, it's really translating a a preposition uh, that just means out of or from. And so I think what he's saying is, is that, you know, if, if we understand that being an heir of Abraham comes from being connected to the law, being a Jew, then what that does is, is that really, it in effect makes faith null and the promise void. So Paul seems to be comparing Jews seeking to become heirs of the promises through works of the law with those who are pursuing it through faith. If you look at verse 15, you'll notice that he begins to kind of unwind this a little bit more. He explains the law saying this, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we know that this is not saying that the law brought wrath and that was its purpose. As though the law is a a bad thing. We also know that this isn't intending I don't believe to say that those who do not have the law cannot sin. And we saw that in Romans 1. Like, you, you cannot have the law and still be a sinner in need of grace. Romans 1, 21 to 23 showed that every human failed to give God the glory that was due his name and deserved the wrath of God. So please just hear this. Uh, I think this is important. Uh, you might be young in your faith and think to yourself, you know, I've thought about reading the Bible, but I think that if I read the Bible, then I'll become more culpable for what's in it. So I feel a little bit better not reading it and not feeling as guilty about what it says. I think that Paul would say, no, that's, that's not the nature of God's revelation to us. We ought to want to know the Word of God. And we ought to know that what the Word of God says for us is best for us if we have the Spirit of Christ living in us. So ignoring God's Word, it doesn't make you less culpable for not glorifying God in the way that He has created you to. But Paul here, I think, is showing something that's nuanced. You'll notice that he uses a specific word for sin here, which is transgression." A word that specifically means to disobey a law that a person has been directly commanded to keep. So in this context, what we find is is that every transgression is a sin, but not every sin is necessarily a transgression. Does Does that make sense? Specific kind of sin. And I think Augustine actually made this pretty clear. He said this about these verses. He said, Paul said this, about the law bringing God's wrath, because God's wrath is more severe towards a transgressor who knows sin by the law and still commits it. See, the law did not bring wrath because it was bad, but because we are. It revealed that to be right with God, it would require an alien righteousness outside of ourselves to be made right with God. Now, pay close attention to Paul's point in verse 16, he He's continuing to ratchet this up. This is what he says. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What is that it in verse 16? That is why it depends on faith. He's speaking still of the promised inheritance. I hope that when you you hear that, the promised inheritance, and if you're understanding what faith means for your relationship to that inheritance, that your eyes get wide and your ears open up because you want to hear, okay, what does this have to do with me? What we find is, is that he is talking still about this promised inheritance to Abraham and his offspring. And he says, the law should highlight our neediness before God for a way... To be made right with him and become a child of Abraham by faith and not by works. Because if it's by works, who shall stand? So God's purpose in verse 16 is twofold. First, that the promise would be received through grace and not through works. And we've seen Paul hit this again and again. He wants us to understand that being made right with God is completely something that is alien to you, that is done for you from outside of you. It is a goodness of God that comes to you in which you have no room to boast. And second, by extension, that all of Abraham's offspring, all of Abraham's offspring would be guaranteed this inheritance. Let me just ask you this morning, who are Abraham's offspring? Who are those who were promised that they will be heirs of the world? Well, he lists two groups, right? I mean, he lists those who are the adherents or those who are of the law, from the law, out of the law, speaking of Jews. And the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Now, this isn't describing two different ways to be made right with God, two ways of salvation. Paul's describing Jews who possess the law and put their faith in Jesus and Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham alone. Now, speaking to a church, you'll remember in context where you have Jews and Gentiles and there's some friction in that relationship. He speaks into that tension about the nature of what has happened in the gospel. He says, your family. You are part of the family of God. Paul says God's original purpose was always that Abraham would be the father of us all. Some people believe that, some believe some promises, like the land or just for physical Israel. But we'll, we'll get to that in the future for now. Notice finally that we also see that all of us become true heirs of Abraham a Christian brother and sister what that means is you are an heir of the world what does that mean I'm not sure I know I'm not sure I know like the the beauties and the glories that await us I'm not sure that my fallen mind which is still though being saved and and sanctified by grace is really ready for all that God has prepared for his people But we are heirs of the world. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul tells Timothy, if we endure, we also will reign with him. And there's a future-oriented nature of the faith that we call hope. And that future-oriented nature of faith, that is the anchor of our souls. It's the anchors of our lives. It's the anchor that we pull ourselves up out of bed in the morning with. For the Christian, those promises, they are reality-shaping. By faith, we are made right with God and receive a future inheritance. We shall reign with him. So for the Christian, this life, it's kind of like a journey to receive the rest of a ridiculous fortune that's hard to make sense of. That's what we're doing in Christ. We are trusting him. Our eyes, they might tell us that, man, we're, we're poor, we've got bills we can't pay, we've got kids that need braces, uh, we can't make it to school on time, my job's not doing great, and yet, and yet, in the midst of all of that, I know that my future is secure. I, I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I know that what's coming in the end. So keeping our eyes on the prize, it will minister to the sorrows of this life. You know, there are things that this life is going to bring you. You might have to bury a spouse or a child. And you might, in the midst of that, be terrified, thinking, what is going to happen to my faith in that moment? What's going to happen? Is my faith going to endure? Well, let me tell you this. We have a God who endures beyond our ability to hold on. God keeps us. The future is bright. We trust Him when we can't trust what our physical eyes are looking at. Notice that Paul proceeds to show what Abraham's faith was like in verses 17 to 22. See, Father Abraham's faith, he says that it grew stronger as his body grew weaker. His faith grew stronger as his body grew weaker. There's a certain irony in that. See, Paul supports the universal fatherhood of Abraham in verse 17, by quoting again Genesis 17, 5, where Yahweh is appearing himself before Abraham. And he says this, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. So in Genesis 17, Yahweh promised to make Abraham the father of many nations, not just Israel. And Abraham believed this promise because he trusted his God who was behind the promise. In other words, it it wasn't just the promise, it was that. But it was the God who promised him that he ultimately was trusting in. Now, did you catch how quickly Paul pivots from the promise to describing the character of God who promises? As the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I mean, he immediately jumps to, let me tell you about my God. And here's how he describes them in those two ways. Now, in context, God does bring life to the dead by giving Abraham and Sarah a child when they were good as dead. In other words, the bringing life from the dead there, speaking specifically of a barren woman giving child, is something that should not have been able to take place. It's a miracle. In fact, it's interesting. If you look in 2 Samuel 2.6, you'll remember that Hannah was barren and God gave her Samuel. And in her song, in 2 Samuel 2.6, she cries out, the Lord brings death and makes alive. So this, this birth is really kind of a death to life kind of thing. It's foreshadowing, of course, something greater later. But God giving a barren woman a baby is giving life to the dead. Uh, He also speaks of God saying he calls into existence the things that do not exist. I, I take this to speak of the way that God made a promise of things to come that have not yet taken place. And there's such certainty about it. In fact, did you notice that the promise that was made to Abraham, that it was in the perfect tense. Now, some of you are like, I hate English. Like, why'd you do that? We were doing good. And then you brought that in. But let me tell you, sometimes paying attention to these nuances, you find beauty. The promise was to Abraham back in Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations. I mean, that, that sounds like he's already completed the action. But he's 99, and he had not had a baby yet. See, God's promise sounds as though it's already come to pass, even though it seems to grow less possible with respect to Abraham day by day as he ages and still he hasn't had an offspring. I think that what Paul wants us to see is the, the certainty and the surety of the promises of God. God never writes a check with his mouth that his powerful arm is unable to cash. He is always able to bring about what he tells us he is going to do. And when God makes promises, it's as good as done. That's what that tent shows us. See, Abraham's faith in God's promise to bring many nations from him, we find in verses 18 to 22 that it was growing stronger as his body grew weaker. Look look again there at what he says in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 4. He says this. It says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Notice trust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, faith and hope, if you're thinking about the relationship between the two, I'm going to give an illustration that I'll probably you know, get corrected on later, but it's kind of like Siamese twins. And what I mean by that is, is that you can't really quite tell where one begins and the other ends sometimes, and they share the same DNA. It's looking to the promises of God, trusting God, taking him in his word. In fact, commentator Tom Schreiner explained it this way, the line between faith and hope blurs so that it's almost indistinguishable. See, Paul's highlighting in these verses the future-oriented nature of Abraham's faith. He believed in hope against hope. That means that as he is believing in God and trusting his promises, it flies in the face of what can reasonably be explained from a human standpoint. Abraham's body weakened his faith did not he didn't take a blind leap of faith no notice that it says that he was considering stuff he was surveying the land he was paying attention to his body and his wife's body you'll notice that he highlights a couple of specifics he considered that he was good as dead at 99 years old and Sarah his wife just turned 89 and she's still barren. So from a physical standpoint, it became more likely that his wife would need to go more to a, like a nursing home than to get ready to nurse a baby. Like, it just doesn't make sense. But did you catch that Abraham's faith grew to trust God more as the things of this world provided him less and less ground for God's promises being fulfilled? Like, that's, that's something otherworldly that God's working in his people. The worse his back hurt, the dimmer his eyesight grew, the more he had to look to and trust God with spiritual eyes. Abraham grew and matured in faith as he saw God's faithfulness and his failures. Are you doing that in your life? Are you growing through your failures, through your sins? Are you repenting and turning to God and learning about what faithfulness looks like Not just in spite of your failures, but in your failures. Are you finding God in those moments? That's where God's people meet with Him and find Him and are refined. God comes and meets us as sinners. And second thing that we learn here, just in these short verses, is that Paul isn't encouraging Christians to faith in their faith. Does that make sense? Faithing in your faith will lead to you going into despair and doubts on the one hand, or maybe developing a kind of unwarranted pride on the other hand, thinking my faith is better than everybody else's faith. I never doubt. Maybe you should a little bit. Have you seen your life? Wow, you're really being mean to the glory of God. I mean, the heartbeat of this passage isn't the power of Abraham's faith. If you're reading closely, as much as it is, the power of Abraham's God. It's not that my faith can do the impossible, it's that my faith is in a God who can do the impossible. So the power of faith is determined by its object. We don't grow in faith by sitting there and navel-gazing and meditating on our faith. We grow in our faith by looking to and trusting in the God who raises the dead and brings the things into existence that were not by his very word. Now, let me say this. You do want to look at your life. You want to have others help you look at your life. You do want to consider whether or not your faith measures up to biblical faith. But if you're struggling with assurance, there are other things that you should focus on. Well, Let me just encourage you to attack it in, in six quick ways. I'm just going to give you six quick ways you're struggling with assurance. One, read your Bible every day and pray for the Holy Spirit to bring assurance to your heart because of who God is. Faith is a spiritual gift. You need to go to God and pray that the Spirit would give it to you and give you more of it. Second, Read Assurance by Greg Gilbert. Great book, talking you through it, giving some text to think about it, to meditate on. Third, consider if there is unconfessed sin in your life. Fourth, maybe you need to eat better, take a nap, and exercise. Just, just saying physical things can impact your spiritual life. Fifth, Seek to obey Jesus because faithfulness grows faith. You know, is your faith full to God? You don't know how things are going to turn out, but you're obeying him because of who he is? Like He is going to grow you and mature you and your willingness and ability to be able to be faithful to him. And sixth, find a friend to disciple you and help you see yourself more clearly. We all have blind spots. Don't faith in your faith. Believe in God who is able to keep his promises. Our final point, four, in verses 23 to 25, is really just a question. Are you a child of Abraham? And Paul says in verses 23 to 25 this, But the words, it was counted to him, they were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Paul says when God counted, imputed, credited Abraham with righteousness because he believed in him and his promises, that wasn't just for Abraham's sake. Paul says, but it is for ours also. Speaking of the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. And if it was true for them, it's true for us. Those verses were for you and for me. See, Abraham, he he looked for an offspring who would become heir of the world. And that offspring has arrived. He's arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, we are justified by faith and become spiritual children of Abraham when we put our faith in God who literally raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus being delivered up likely is alluding to Isaiah 53:12 where Isaiah told us that there was a suffering servant that was going to come and he was going to lay down his life. He says because of their sins he was delivered up. And later in Romans 8:32 we find that Paul says God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our trespasses and from the just wrath of God. And when God forgives us, he treats us not as enemies, but as children and heirs of the promises of God, which is uh, is something that he's going to enumerate later throughout Romans. But also, did you notice that God raised him from the dead for our justification? Now, this is a strange phrase. Paul doesn't say this in other places in, in this way. This is the only place that he says it in this way. But you'll notice that Paul says that God raised Jesus for our justification. God made us right with him at the cross and the resurrection. I think what's happening here is he's saying that it verifies publicly that Jesus' sacrifice really did make us right with God. So that if your faith is in Christ, you are a child of Abraham and an heir to all of those promises. You're an heir of the world. So, is that you? I think that's what Paul would want his church to ask. Is that you? Are you a a true son or daughter of Abraham? Let me ask you that this morning. Are you a child of Abraham? Have you put your faith in Christ so that you have peace with God? You're no longer under his wrath like all of humanity is apart from him. Are you an heir to the promises of Abraham? If not, you still face his wrath and judgment. But if you come to God with an open hand, putting your faith in Christ today, He will forgive you of your sin debt. He will credit you with His righteousness. And He will make you an heir to the promises of a future and a hope as a child not just of Abraham, but of God living with Him forever. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Don't leave without talking to me today about putting your faith in Christ. Most important decision you'll ever make. But for the rest of us, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to sing to this great God. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you have given us your righteousness in Christ. Father, you made a way where there was no way. You have given us your very son so that we might become heirs of the promises made to Abraham. Father, if there's even one person here this morning, perhaps there are many who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, who have not put their faith in him. Lord, I ask that you would break their hearts, that you would help them see how poor and needy they are, and you would help them to see how glorious Jesus is. And I ask that they would reach up to you for grace that only you can give. It's in your name we do pray.
6: you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now.
0: The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello,
7: heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. That we might share in His holiness. Jonah's not acting very holy right now. I mean, he's not exhibiting Christ-likeness at all. And God is disciplining him just like he does with us. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I believe we're going to see, I think it did yield that fruit in the life of Jonah eventually. Jonah had totally forgotten Proverbs 3, which he knew probably. I'm sure he did as a prophet of Israel. He had forgotten God's word and he was feigning in the context of discipline. But God was preparing the soil of his heart to stir it up that he might listen to the word of God and be changed. Maybe the Lord God has allowed you to be temporarily blessed and he has taken it away from you to show you where your heart really lies, to reveal your twisted thinking towards him and towards your circumstances. This is his discipline. And he is preparing your heart to hear and my heart to hear the word of God which confronts those attitudes right on. And I pray that we will listen. Next we see here that God uses his word again to uncover Jonah's sinful thoughts in verses 9 through 11. And we have the question again. Verse 9. Then, right at boom, 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 boom. Jonah's angry again because of the sun. The plant died. Then... God said to Jonah, same question, do you have good reason to be angry? Now he says, concerning about or on or over the plant. And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Jonah's got a bad attitude. Now I admittedly struggled in my study concerning this phrase because if you literally translate it, it is, is doing good angering you because of the plant? It's difficult to understand this phrase. It's an interpretive challenge as we saw back in verse 4. But I believe clearly it is the doing of good in the context of God's discipline, in the context of God's salvation, that is angering Jonah, because Jonah has a wrong perception of things. I think the same case could be made here as it was in verse 4. God is doing good with this plant, raising it up and allowing it to be destroyed. And Jonah's missing it, at least for now. In the context of his self-centeredness and self-focus, he's angered. Do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Is there really any good reason? Jonah's really hot again. And why is he? God raised up a plant, shaded Jonah's head. Jonah possibly saw that as an affirmation of God towards him concerning Nineveh. We need to remember that. Jonah was certainly selfish, but his selfishness was twisted in his theology. He had a wrong view of God, as we've seen, and quite possibly that wrong view. God allowed Jonah to vindicate that within himself, and then he took it away to reveal where Jonah's heart really was. And Jonah got angry again. And brothers and sisters, Jonah is totally circumstance-driven. And his view of his circumstances drives his attitudes and behaviors. And his view is not God's view. And that's why Jonah is all messed up. And that's why we get messed up. God does good. Jonah perceives it as evil. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And in this text here, the you in Hebrew is emphatic. Do you, Jonah, you, God is addressing Jonah, have good reason to be angry? What's Jonah's answer to God's word? Another wicked one. Maybe it's your answer. Yeah, I do have good reason. To death. Jonah takes basically God's statement to him, turns it around, and affirms it to himself. Yes, I've got good reason. Even to death. Jonah is at the pinnacle of his disobedience at this point. Yet God is right there disciplining him and confronting him. And he doesn't let Jonah go very far at all. And if you're a true believer, he does not let you go very far. He addresses you right away. He disciplines for your good. Let me remind you what we saw last week, the dangers of anger. The core of anger, as we saw last week, you can get the CD, is that we have a twisted view of God based on our circumstances. And God's solution is to confront us with his truth. Jonah's problem being here, he is analyzing things through his own wisdom rather than through the word of God. Jonah totally misunderstood the nature of God, as revealed in his anger towards God because of the salvation of the Ninevites. And now he is totally angry to God because his pet plant has been destroyed and he's getting hot in the desert. Which, don't forget, is his fault he is out there. God didn't say, Jonah, go out from the city. God said, go to the city and proclaim. And he hadn't even gotten through three days and he's split because he's mad and now he's suffering. So some of it's his own consequences, but the other certainly is God's discipline. All of it is fashioned that way. And then at this point, at the end here of the book, we have this lesson towards Jonah explained. God uses his word to reveal Jonah's sinful heart. Verse 10. Then the Lord God said, and again we have the Lord God's word here, right? We have God's word again. You had compassion on a plant which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? God confronts Jonah, snappy anger. Then the Lord God said right away, Jonah's saying, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then God said, simple object lesson, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. God declares that Jonah had compassion the first time this particular word is used in the book of Jonah. The word speaks of pity. It speaks of pity, and it's used throughout Scripture to speak of God exhorting his people not to pity those who are disobedient, that God will judge. Don't show pity for them. But God shows pity ultimately. We see here ultimately that Jonah had pity for the plant. He had pity for it. A selfish, self-centered pity. Now, I want to clarify, God certainly wants us to have compassion on people who are dying, but in the old covenant, they were told to not have pity on those who would go away with false teachers and false prophets, Deuteronomy 13. It's that same word that's used here. Jonah had pity for the plant, and he had no real ties to it. He didn't cause it to grow. He didn't work it out. He didn't pour water on it. He didn't you know, get the ground ready. You didn't work. You didn't cause it to grow. It came up overnight and perished overnight. Do you see it? Jonah, you pitied the plant, which you had nothing to do with, except that it brought you blessing. You didn't work, cause it to grow. It came up overnight, perished. You had pity for it. And here's the real lesson. In contrast, Jonah's pity for a worthless plant versus God's Pity, same word for people. Verse 11, and should not I have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Jonah, you pitied a plant that you had nothing to do with except what it had to do with you and your selfishness, Jonah. Should I not have compassion on others, on people? This great city, 120,000 persons who don't know their right and left hand, and there's all sorts of talk about what that means. I think it simply means children who don't know what their right and left is. And therefore, the city was a great city as we see in history, and there was probably more than a half a million people. And there were a lot of animals too, and God saying, should not I have pity on them? Here's where Jonah missed it completely. Twisted compassion for the plant compared to God's loving compassion for sinful people. Jonah's compassion was for things that blessed him. Some people serve the Lord only in the context that it blesses them and aligns with their thinking concerning God. And that's what Jonah was doing. And when God called him to go out of that into where he wanted him to be, Jonah got angry. And when God brought about gracious results, Jonah got angry. And God showed him this lesson here. In contrast to his pitiful compassion, through a very extreme example, we seek God's loving compassion for sinful people. There are a lot of lessons in this passage, but what is the lesson that God is teaching us here? I think through a very extreme example, God has unveiled Jonah's sinful, selfish compassion, which is so unlike God's. Jonah, your compassion and thinking is totally messed up, and God used his discipline and his word... To reveal it. Do you remember in chapter one, Jonah was selfishly willing to let everyone die in the boat. He went under, and he was going to go to sleep and let God just take them all. Selfish. He didn't care about the sailors. He had no compassion upon them except a self-pity for himself. See the same thing in chapters three and four, a pitiful self-pity. And folks, if you have Focus on yourself rather than others. This is going to be the manifestation of that in your lives too. Everything you do for God is going to be centered around yourself rather than Christ and others. So what's the message here? Jonah, you are so unlike God. Your compassion is for self, not others. So then we have the end of the book of Jonah. Now this may trouble you because it ends with a poignant question addressing the heart of Jonah. And the question in our hearts is probably, did Jonah repent? Did Jonah actually finally respond to God's discipline and his word? text doesn't say, but I believe he did. It's my view that Jonah finally got it after this. There's nothing else recorded. I believe this is what God finally did to show him how wicked his thinking was. And I'll share why. 2 Kings chapter 14:25 says according to the word of the Lord the God of Israel which he spoke through his servant Jonah. He's not called his servant here, but in 2 Kings he's called his servant. And I shared the first time we looked at the book of Jonah that there is not a very long list in scripture in which people are called his servant. Now besides Nebuchadnezzar who was unwittingly God's servant and ultimately came Brought about wrath, but ultimately came to faith. We see Job, Jacob, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Abijah, Elijah, Isaiah, Hezekiah, Zerubbabel, Israel, and Jesus Himself called His servant. And here we have Jonah, His servant. I think Jonah did repent, and I think another evidence of his repentance is the Book of Jonah itself. It's obviously autobiographical. And it's widely accepted and I believe that Jonah wrote it himself and it is a testimony to his repentance because he shares all the bad stuff. And when someone's truly repentant, they say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's how bad it was. And Jonah, I think, wrote that and I think he did repent. But the real question is not whether Jonah repented. The real question to us is have we repented? Some of you are like the sailors on the ship. You're basically good people. You're not living lives of wickedness. You have compassion for other people. They had compassion on Jonah. They served their gods. They were pagans. They did their jobs well. Yet they were one storm away from God's ultimate judgment. And God was gracious to them. And he shared his word to them. And they repented And they greatly feared the Lord. They believed. Now some of you are like the Ninevites and your actions demonstrate it. You're wicked. You are adulterous in your actions. You have idols in your heart and life. You don't fear the Lord God and he is going to judge you. But God's gracious and he will relent if you repent. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. He paid the penalty on the cross for you. And then there's some of us here who are tempted to be like Jonah. We fear the Lord, but yet in some ways we are very much like Jonah. We've been saved, but our view of God is messed up because it's self-centered. It's twisted. It's not from the Word of God. It's from our experiences and our circumstances. And if you're a true believer, God is going to do what he did with Jonah. He may need to bring you to the edge of your life in discipline. But he's going to address your attitudes towards the way you serve him. And I believe Jonah did serve him rightly. My servant, Jonah. And then there's some of you here that are not like Jonah. You're faithful. You don't have bad attitudes. You serve the Lord faithfully. You are walking in a manner worthy of the great calling in which you have been called. The book of Jonah is a testament to how easily we can slip. Take heed, you who stand, lest you fall. We can easily start to think this way, and it is a warning to us not to crave evil things such as our will rather than God's. The question is not today whether Jonah repented, but whether... We have repented. God's a gracious, compassionate God. It is shown in this book. He saves the Ninevites. He saves the sailors. He deals graciously with Jonah. The only thing that he destroyed was a plant. He's a gracious God. And his word declares that graciousness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Joel chapter 2, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, and render your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting in evil. God's a compassionate God, and he is in the business of making us like his son, compassionate. And he was working on Jonah, and I believe it worked. And I pray it works with us too. I pray his discipline and his word that we yield and allow it to change our hearts to be like Christ.